0: Even if you want to ignore the data, like at the end of the day, like, don't I want to create a better, more competitive, you know, field, the more competition, you're going to find the best talent, right? You're going to find the best companies. And when you look at venture capitalists that are quite frankly, majority of, you know, one race or ethnicity, right? Or one gender. And then you look at the founders and you look at who they're funding. It doesn't take rocket science to say, Hey, it doesn't look like they're investing in all companies. In a
1: fast-moving digital world, what does it mean to be a sustainable business? And how does identity empower your business? Join me as I share a glimpse of our life at Spokio. Explore the minds of data industry leaders and dive deeper into relevant topics in the digital world. So uh, today, I'm very, very glad and very honored to have my old friend, Emmanuel Pletes as our inaugural uh, guest of the 10 Talks podcast. So Emmanuel, welcome.
0: I'm excited to be here. Feels like old times, man. We go way back, so exciting uh, to be here as one of your first guests or your first guest, hopefully.
1: <laughs> well, it is my first guest, and nice. uh, and you know we go way back. But uh, I think you have a very very interesting journey, right? Uh, obviously, graduated from a top school, and uh, and later actually ran for a uh, mayor of LA, and now doing investments and things like that. So, if you don't mind, can you kind of Uh, go over a summary of your story because I think your journey is one of the most interesting journeys that that I've known personally.
0: I appreciate that. I, you know... I think uh, I'll give you the whole story, but I think I'll, I'll start with my high-level view of myself. Of I've just been lucky, and you know, you kind of work hard, and things just kind of work out. And it's been a winding road. It's not been a straight line. Uh, at the same time, I, I, I've enjoyed every bit of it, including my stint at, at Spokio uh, back in the day in uh, 2012 time frame. Uh, but I, I came—I um, you know, I was, I was born in, in the LA area. Uh, um, my mom uh, was actually— uh, from Mexico, she came across the border when she was pregnant with me. Uh, so I think that was lucky point number one. Like I was a U.S. citizen uh, the moment I, 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 um, you know, was born. And you know, I grew up in in inner city L.A., which wasn't, especially in the '80s and '90s. If anyone knows the history there, right, you can do your own Google searching or Wikipedia searching uh of what it was like. Right, high high murder rates, homicide rates. You know, a lot of gangs. Um, had a lot of friends in, in, involved in, in that life. And um, I think I was just lucky that i played sports i had sort of you know um i didn't have i didn't grow up with my dad my mom was a single mom but i was able to have a lot of coaches um from my athletic teams that i think were the ones that i i looked up to and that guided me and then you know i i was lucky enough to excel in in school get to stanford university which is a great obviously university and then at that point you're you know sky's the limit at that point you start meeting people you start realizing what is your actual potential that you didn't realize before Uh, and then that's when I just kind of took off right and I said okay what do I do you know how can I make a difference in the long run but how can I also not miss out on the opportunity that I have at a place like Stanford so I went to Wall Street Uh, at the same time I was starting to do political campaigns right my civic sort of you know interest to be involved in public service um, started there and you know one thing leads to another I got some good good uh, logos on my resume uh, and eventually have been able to sort of get into the investment side Um, but you know all in all just you know blessed to kind of be on this journey um and uh excited to now be in a situation where i could impart at least my two cents and hopefully inspire other people to you know either follow my path or do their own path in their own way cool
1: yeah i i think i know a lot of people in finance but i think you are the only person i know in finance and then start running the <laughs> the mayor of la so do you mind going through that a little bit further yeah. like what drives you to actually quit like very good jobs and then uh going to uh, actually run for that political campaign. and actually got it to the fifth place, right? So. Yeah,
0: uh, it, it's funny. Quit, <laughs> very good jobs. Um, I think that's a theme you don't want to copy me, but it's a theme that actually has happened in my life. I I, I left Goldman Sachs um, to go uh, and work in the Obama administration. I uh, left Spokio to go run for office, run for mayor of LA, uh, and you know, so on and so forth. So I think for me, there's a little bit of you know, I don't want to give too much, you know, sort of, you know, um, credit to Silicon Valley, but there's a little bit of the Silicon Valley ethos where you're not afraid to take on the giants. Right. And, and then you couple that with like view that you want to make a difference and you don't want to wait. Right. I have a lot of friends who are like, let me wait, make money, and then I'll give some of it back. And that'll be how I help the world. Uh, and for me, it was like, why wait, just do it right now. Uh, and so you, you put that together and I'm like, hey, the people running for mayor of LA, like don't really inspire me. I'm like, why don't I just do it? Cause I can do it. Uh, and I believe in myself. And by that point, I wasn't sort of a newbie in politics. I used to work for the mayor of Los Angeles. So I actually saw the like seven days a week life and what it took, what it took to build a team, what it took to think about policy. Uh, what it took to really understand the gravity of being a mayor of, a, of the second largest city in, in the US. So put all that together and then, you know, you get into my head, you're like, it makes sense, right? And and even the way I ran my came, campaign, it was an upstart campaign. I had like 40 people working full-time, not getting paid, you know, a normal salary, just like enough for them to get by and to walk the streets of LA. So, so you know, it's, it was a combination of like, I'm willing to take on the giants. I, I didn't really care about a, a long-term political career I just cared about serving and and so I felt okay doing it and I said let's let's give it a shot and you know friends like you friends like you know throughout my life were able to back me and you know it didn't work out at the same time I learned a lot I was able to help a lot of people get to what they what they wanted to do, uh, and then I was able to parlay that into still helping the city government. I was appointed by the guy who ended up winning. Eric Garcetti became our mayor. Mayor Garcetti he appointed me to appointed me to be his first commissioner for the Los Angeles Fire and Police Pension System, which kind of put me back into like marrying do good with investments right and managing at that point just under 20 billion dollars of assets so anyway long story short is that you, you got to dream big and not be afraid to take on the giants and if you believe you're right and just do it for the right thing everything's going to work itself out
1: and by the way i remember you were literally running for la how <laughs> many track. miles do you run like, right. for that campaign <laughs> in the
0: in the last week uh, before uh, election day yeah. it was over a hundred miles that we ran from literally the west side of the san fernando valley like in the canoga park west hills area through the whole valley down through mid-city through downtown la to east la and down all the way to the harbor to san pedro so pretty pretty exhausting week but you know you got to give it your all too right (laughs) if you're gonna do it do it right (laughs) go for it don't don't just uh you know do do it just to kind of say you're doing it
1: (laughs) yeah that's that's one of the craziest but coolest political campaigns i can think of
0: Um, thanks man but uh yeah so what are you doing now then yeah yeah so uh, since since that campaign i i joined a a startup uh so i I, you know hard hard to rip me away from things that were you're the underdog (laughs) Uh, so i joined a startup with like three people and i was like the fourth person uh did that um i also um the, the whole theme of service i enlisted in the army Uh, and this was 2013, I had always wanted to do it, but every single point along the way when I wanted to enlist and serve my country in that manner, I had very good mentors who all said, Stop it. You got to... a job offer from Goldman Sachs go there you got a job offer from McKinsey and company stop this whole military thinking just go there and and you know at some point right after the mayoral campaign i was like all right i got a blank sheet of paper in front of me a whiteboard if you may uh, i w- i want to do what i want to do and at that point i was you know getting a little older i was 30 at that point um and, and i said it's time for me to just enlist so i walked into a recruiter's office and i enlisted in the army uh so did that went through training went through basic training with like 18 year olds from middle america uh, uh, and, um, you know, then I kind of had that moment in life where I was like, all right, what do I really want to do for the long run, right? And I said, how do I marry everything I've done? I've worked inside of tech companies from consumer internet to enterprise software, right, to services. I've also been in a markets role at Goldman Sachs, looking at the the, the trading, you know, that's happening day to day, Wall Street, that whole thing, and then obviously, you Being able to go to school at Stanford, I was very close to Silicon Valley. So my view was that I want to be a technology investor. And now I knew that it wasn't easy. You can't just say, I want to be a venture capitalist today. And then someone's going to give you a job for a venture capitalist. I know that's not not how it works. So what I did was I reached out to about 100 different venture capital and private equity firms that invested in tech. They all said no to me, except for one. (laughs) And that one said, hey, I can't guarantee that you're going to have a job here. But uh, if you do X, Y, Z with us, maybe. Uh, And so that's what I took. I took that maybe and I ran with it. I said, there's an opening in the door. Let me go in and let me go hard. And you know, that was around 2015 timeframe once I came back from military training. So 2015 out to 2023, I've been investing. So I've been building my own independent track record. I worked at that firm for a little over two years. And and since then I said, let me start building out my own track record. And that's where I am right now where I'm building out my own investment track record. I'm very hands-on with portfolio companies and one in particular company called Phoenix where I'm actually an employee of Phoenix. you know and and I kind of jumped in and, and ran their their business development and through that spun out something called cap table coalition where I said hey we need to do more on diversity and the phoenix ceo Um, actually, he's the one that said, I'm going to open up 10% of my cap table of of my round that I'm about to raise. At that point, it was a series B extension to underrepresented investors. And I was the one behind the scenes that he kind of tapped to say, hey, can you make this happen? And so one thing leads to another, we now have invested in over 30 plus companies. uh, And um, it's been, you know, a very good amount of money, I would say, we're on pace to be like a $200 million venture capital vehicle. And so from that, we've now created, a team an investment committee within cap table coalition that is ready to raise a full institutional venture capital vehicle
1: yeah that's amazing uh I want to add that actually, uh, in consumer internet, the conversion rate usually is in single digits. So one out of one hundred is actually not bad. It's actually on par. <laughs> <laughs> I I, t- I took
0: that from my time working with you. <laughs>
1: yeah, so don't undercount yourself. But uh, but yeah, then what's the mission of the sure. uh, table Coalition? Yeah.
0: So you know the mission again spawned from the. Um, you know, kind of the the uh, post-George Floyd movement, 2020, uh, and a lot of folks out there were saying, hey, I care about diversity, but I don't know, what to do, or I'm just going to say, I care about diversity and then we'll see, we'll try to do something. And that's where, uh, in this case of Phoenix CEO, Richie Serna said, I'm going to dedicate 10%. So it was a little bit of a sort of rally cry to other founders of companies to say, Hey, if you're raising money, make sure you're trying to diversify the people on your cap table. Now, look, in reality, I know how hard it is to raise money. Not everyone has the luxury or the privilege to be able to open up their cap table and have a bunch of people want to invest. However, if you do have, that privilege, then you should open it up. Because if you can diversify your cap table, you diversify the ownership, you're sort of taking a step to becoming a more mature company, right? Because what do you do when you go public? You diversify your cap table, right? You let everyone open, You know, everyone in the public investing you. Uh, so this is sort of a shortcut to that. Second, if you're on the side of, hey, I am working my butt off to invest. I wanna build my own track record to become a venture capitalist, right? Or become an investor. You don't always get invited into the best deals, right? The deals that Sequoia Capital are doing, that Andreessen Horowitz are doing, that Benchmark is doing. If you don't know them, you're not going to get invited to invest with them. And so the whole mission of Cap Table Coalition spawned from that where we where we said, "Hey, these folks that are just as smart, just as talented, in fact even probably working even harder" we should figure out ways to get them access. And so what I like to say is objective number one, objective number two, and objective number three of CapTable Coalition is track record, track record, and track record. How do you build your own independent track record so you could prove to the world that you're just as good as an investor as anyone else out there? And so the idea is that from CapTable Coalition, we're gonna find the next Sequoia Capitals, the next benchmarks led by folks from underrepresented backgrounds.
1: Hmm. So do you believe like diversity can actually drive like business results or is it mostly coming from like a social impact kind of angle?
0: Yeah, I think I think both, right? I don't, mm-hmm. there's countless studies now from McKinsey, my old firm, uh, doing their own study on how diversity, one in the boardrooms, diversity and leadership of companies drives the ability for you to make better decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, folks like the Knight Foundation have shown that, uh, investors that come from underrepresented backgrounds uh, can get just as good as returns. If not, actually, when when you look at first-time funds or the first two, three funds, they actually do better than uh, uh, mainstay venture capital and private equity firms. So the data is out there, right? Now, on the social impact side, even if you want to ignore the data, like at the end of the day, like, don't I want to create a better, more competitive, you know, field, So that the more competition, you're going to find the best talent, right? You're going to find the best companies. And when you look at venture capitalists that are quite frankly, majority of, you know, one, you know, race or ethnicity, right? Or one gender. And then you look at the founders and you look at who they're funding. It it doesn't take rocket science to say, Hey, uh, it doesn't look like they're investing in all companies, right? And so when you look at that you're like saying hey maybe there's like 80 percent of the rest of the world is not getting access to the same funding and are they not as talented i would say at minimum they're probably the same talent right they may be even hungrier because they don't have the access so the way capital gets deployed is distorted by the folks that currently have more capital right and so captable coalition is saying hey At minimum, we should just open up that playing field and let other people play, right? But then, if you look at the data, diversity actually works. Then let's do it even more, right? Let's diversify cap tables, and you get folks that previously did not have access to now take ownership. What happens to their families, right? What happens to their wealth? They're able to now have you know higher wealth, right? They're able to now do their own service that they do in their community. Um, Usually folks that come from underrepresented backgrounds, if you look at that data, they usually do more things in the community, they give away more of their money, they do more volunteer service. So when you think about that, you're actually making the world a better place. Right. So those are all the reasons which, you know, I I could, I could shout from the the mountaintops about that, but at the end of the day, you know, it's not just about shouting and and explaining, it's just about doing it. And so cap table coalition is about doing it right. And actually diversifying cap tables, actually, you know, calling on founders to open up their cap tables and then creating a network, which we now have about 800 plus investors Mm. that can actually deploy their own money, right. Or money that they're managing on someone else's behalf so that they can build their track records and actually make decisions um, with equity, uh, uh, on behalf of other companies.
1: Are there certain types of companies or certain market uh, market verticals that you guys focus on or just uh, a
0: general tech? Yeah, yeah good question. they right. um, they we're, we're agnostic. Uh, I would say that we have skewed a little bit towards growth companies uh, because um, from a risk mitigation perspective, right? when you look at companies that already have a product market fit already are growing, um, that's sort of where the investors have gravitated to towards. Uh, However, uh, what we have done is we don't want to be prescriptive to anyone. We want to let the investor make the decision. And while there are a lot of books out there, a lot of YouTube videos out there where you can try to learn to become an investor, there's nothing like practice repetition, Mm -hmm. right? And when I think about that, I just want reps. I want repetitions. I want someone who is trying to become an investor to hear from 30 founders. Because if she only hears from one founder and that's the one opportunity, she might think it's a good deal. But if she doesn't hear from 10 other founders, then it's hard to compare and contrast, right? So if you give repetitions to people over time, they're going to get better. Venture capitalists, when they started out as an associate or even a VP because their buddy invited them to their firm, they didn't have that track record. They didn't have that repetition. But when you sit in investment committee meetings every Monday morning, you know, week on, week out, and you're hearing from founders over and over again, you learn. And that's what we're trying to do is create that repetition to allow other folks that maybe don't have that access to get their reps Get their practice in, and over time they're going to become better investors.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, practice makes perfect, right? Like not everyone's like Allen Iverson. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I literally thought that practice. Yeah. What you mean, practice?
0: Uh, no, but yeah. it, it's 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 almost like too simple of a concept, right? Yeah. Just practice. Get your reps in. You get your reps in. You're going to be a better investor. Definitely. So,
1: so like how many? what's your day-to-day like like do you just make calls all the time like <laughs> how, how much practice do you get yeah. yeah
0: um i mean i do look at companies you know pretty much every day uh and then through my work at phoenix i you know as sort of helping uh um lead biz dev what i do there is we sell to software companies right phoenix is selling a payments uh, product to software companies and so i actually look at companies pretty much every day through phoenix through cap table coalition and then just other personal investing that I like to do. Um, I like to also do some control deals. I've been building out my private equity control track record, um, you know, through capital. So they're, they're sort of, I, I just love looking at companies. I love analyzing them. I love building relationships with founders and figuring out like what is their future and where is the best place to place capital, All right. If you look back at the end of the day, you know, it, it's about allocation of resources. And so you want to, if you have your own money or other people are trusting you with their money, how do you allocate it to the right places? And that's what an investor is doing. So the more places you have to allocate the money, the better you become as an investor. And I think that's what, I think I'm reaching that level in my own career where I think I have I now have enough access that I have a lot of options and that optionality is making me better and better. And hopefully over time, I'll be able to you know gain the trust of more people.
1: Mm. So how, how do you know like which founder... Uh, to invest in, like what kind of qualities do you look for, right? Because obviously a lot of founders are very, very eloquent and looks, sounds very, very passionate. But how do you, how do you actually uh, quantify their skill sets? And then how do you actually uh, qualify that they are actually good, uh, good founders?
0: Sure. So there's no one size fits all. And uh, that that's as, as an investor, um, there are some investors that are really all about the founder. Um, I tend to say the founder is only one part of it, right? I really care about the market and I don't care as much about the size of the market. You hear some venture capitalists that say it's all about how big the market is. And I don't actually believe that. I believe that if it's a founder that has certain attributes, in my case, I love scrappy founders. I love founders that don't need the money, right? (laughs) I love founders who are saying, Hey, I absolutely could utilize the money, but if I don't get the money, I'm still going to win. All right, I'm still going to figure it out, and that kind of scrappiness, that that, that sort of work ethic, love that in founders. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like I, I I'm not the person that's going to follow, uh, you know, a, a a Travis Kalanick type. I don't know Travis, but everything <laughs> i read about him, not inspiring to me. Uh, um, so I, I want founders who maybe are a little have a little bit more humility in life, um, that know that they have to work hard to still get to the top. Uh, but then, if you couple that with the right market, with a market that is growing. Right with a solution, product, or service that is tackling that market, then that's where you get some amazing win-win scenarios. Uh, And so, as an investor, I look for sort of a combination of that, and not just focus on one thing. Because I've I've met founders of all you know shapes and stripes, uh, and and they don't they don't all look like you, Harrison. And you're like one (laughs) of the most successful founders that I know. Uh, And some founders love to take a lot of money and raise venture money and and try to use that you know the take the permission of the venture capitalists to burn cash, to build something that's groundbreaking and different. Other people say, let me take a little slower path. I don't need to burn as much cash. And you know, maybe I already have product market fit and I just wanna scale the company without the cash. And other people are saying, well, I'm just gonna take my time, build the tech slowly. And over time at the right moment, I hit the market countless times you'll hear investors and founders to say i had an amazing tech it just wasn't a good market mm. and that happens all the time so that's why i think as an investor i've moved to a point where i, I, I want to mix and match these different vectors of growth of you know work ethic right and and then over over, over time like being able to uh, put together the right team mm.
1: now if you're look, looking for founders who don't need money then how do you convince them to take your money especially since uh. there are a lot of investors right especially Prior to this year, yeah. like monies are kind of easy to get, right? So, right. how do you actually uh, differentiate from other investors and also convince that these uh, founders who don't need money to take
0: your money? That's right. That is that is the question. Uh, in fact, I think you are one of the ones that has repeated this adage to me uh, that that I've heard in other places as well. Is that the best companies are bought, not sold, right? And and so if you take that, you you know if you have a good thesis from an investor perspective, you're like, I want to do that. Then you can focus on the founders that are working on that. Right. And when you talk to a founder and you've probably had many or not probably, I know you've had many investors that have reached out to you. Um, you can smell out right away that these investors actually don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and they just and so, send you a mess email. <laughs> yeah. It's like they just, you know, they hire some random person to send out a bunch of emails. Yeah. Um, no, but, but, uh, investors that actually take the time to understand the space, understand the space where this company is playing matters, right? So you need to do your homework. You need to do that. Then there's a, there is still a human element of connectivity. And I do think that uh, that is a trait that I've been able to um, develop. Maybe some of it is just my personality, but I think I've been able to develop that trait where you need to really build trust with founders, mm-hmm. right? Countless times, founders actually do not take the highest valuation. They'll take a valuation that's reasonable, but it's because they trust the investor, right? Or they believe they'd rather work with that investor over the long run. Because if you take money from someone, you're essentially getting married to them for a, for a while, right? In fact, sometimes getting married for longer than marriages last. <laughs> sadly, in this in this country. Um, so, so you as a founder are taking are thinking about all that. And so, me as the investor, if I'm talking to a company, I want I want to make sure I do my homework, right? I want to I want to be clear that this is the value I could add. I don't want to blow you know, smoke <laughs> up <laughs> anyone. I want to, I want to be able to say, I can actually deliver this and in a respectful way and not over promise. All right. And then being able to say at At the end of the day, like you're going to, you're going to actually enjoy working with me, right? I don't need to be in your business every day, but I'm here to help. I'm here for that, that call when you need to talk to someone because you're, you're facing a tough decision. They need to feel comfortable. And it's funny. I'm going to bridge to my military training here because I am in human intelligence. Uh, I, I In the army, I, I do human intelligence, which includes interrogations, includes essentially collecting information uh, from human beings. And there, there's sort of a marriage of all my worlds where actually as an investor. You need to be able to connect at a, at a human level with the founder so that then at the end of the day, they're going to want you on their team. And then valuation and all that other stuff goes kind of out the window. It's all about like, could you be the right fit and someone that they could partner with for the long run? Hmm.
1: So do you might share a tip on how do you build that trust? Because obviously the trust is kind of this holy grail, not just in marketing, right? Like marketing, we know if we build that trust between the brand and consumers, you will increase conversion rate. But also, for example, in the market of identity, uh, trust and authentic web is the holy grail, right? So how do you kind of uh, build that trust like uh, between when you just meet a founder
0: for the first time? It's a good question. So um, I, I always like to just break it down. Forget the business world. And all that i think um if you have a good resume that stands on itself you don't need to flaunt it you don't need to brag about anything um, it'll get uncovered. Uh, so I think I'm lucky that at least I have that going for me. But then at a, at a, at a just a basic level, uh, a founder is a human being that that has their own motivations, their own interests in life, right? Their own view of their own future. Like, what do they want? Do they do they want money right now? Do they want money in five years? Do they you know do they have an ego? The answer is probably yes, right? But there's different degrees of ego. Every founder has an ego. But how is that ego? Uh, you know, how, how does that? Uh, get calibrated in investment, right? Do they want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine? Do they want to be uh, mentioned in the Wall Street Journal, or do they just want to be someone that gives back to their community? And so, if you take the time to understand the founder, understand what they want, and sometimes it's founding team, right? Um, you have co-founders, very different dynamics too. And so, understanding those dynamics, understanding what levers you know they care about the most, that allows you to put a package in front of people that they're going to appreciate because you're listening to them. So -hmm. it's not one size fits all. I've done deals where it's like, here's money, whatever, you know, the terms were already negotiated, I can just turn around and I trust that everything's going to go well. And then there's deals where I'm going to take a 60% controlling stake in a company and I'm going to do quality of earnings, legal due diligence. I want to meet the customers. I want to meet your employees. I want to interview your engineers uh, and you go deep into due diligence. Mm. And there's no one way to do due diligence. I would say you want to skew towards more intense due diligence. At the same time, you also need to, Build that rapport with the founder to understand why are you doing it are you doing it just to check boxes are you doing it to really understand the company because you can add value and so you know those are all the things that you're trying to you know figure out in that getting to know you process with the founder i'm, I'm glad to hear that
1: uh investment takes so many so many human elements because uh at least we know that it won't be our job won't be outsourced to <laughs> <Exactly>. ai's, <laughs> exactly. AIs or machine learning
0: yeah yeah no I, I have friends who say like well once you establish valuation, isn't it easy? You just like invest, right? You just send them a term sheet and they accept. I'm like, ah, there's a human element. The founding team needs to trust you. They need to want to work with you. Otherwise, like it's just, you know, papers and numbers and like any, any other investor could do that, Mm -hmm. right? Plenty hundreds, if not thousands of investors that could probably do that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Did these conversations change in the past year? We all know that the economy has changed quite a bit, right? Even job markets like turn from really hot in the tech and then now not so much, right? So did these conversations change in the past few years, in in the past few months? yeah.
0: They have, uh, well, two things, right? There's, there's, uh, I would say two major things. One is COVID and the other is the markets, uh, crashing, especially on the tech side. Uh, uh. COVID uh, has made it way more acceptable for you not to always have to meet in person. So uh, there are founders that I meet that are totally okay with just a bunch of Zoom calls or G meets or whatever, and and not meeting in person. However, if you're actually really trying to make a sizable investment and actually working, being hands-on with the company, that in person, I'm, I'm a little old school, still kind of needs to happen, right? So that's sort of you know, COVID impact, uh, but now the markets. Yes, tech is getting crushed. Uh, there are some companies that are down 80, 90%, and that's just reality, All right. Now I can get into the mechanics of interest rates rising, cost of capital increasing, and you know, there's, a, there's a rationale for why uh, the valuations are going down, especially in the public markets and reverberating through the private markets. Uh, but ultimately, there is now uh, a lack of capital availability versus in November 2021 when it was peak Capital availability. Most people could get money from a lot of places. Today, a lot of founders, even great companies, I just talked to a company yesterday uh, that is, in my opinion, a great technology, right, with real customers, um, but they're burning a bunch of cash and they may not make it. I don't know if they're gonna make it. At the same time, it's a company that is really interesting to me. And so they could be a play that I can come in. And I know that I'm probably going to pay a lower valuation than what they were expecting in November 2021. And that's just a reality. So I think there is definitely a, a change in temperament, a change in you know what companies now believe is actually attainable. And the the last thing I'll leave you with is that most founders are not capital markets experts. They are not the experts on the economy. And some try to be, but most realize that they're not. And so they're just reading all the same stuff that everyone else is reading. And so they're being influenced by all this stuff. The more you can say, Hey, let me break it down to you. I'm not trying to sell you. I just want to explain what I know. You build that trust back to building that trust. And you know, you might end up being able to make a good investment and the founder again is going to go back to trusting you. So never forget that. Um, it's very tough times for the tech companies right now because valuations. but go back to your roots, right? Why did you start the company? What made you successful? Do that and then find good partners. Uh, don't worry so much about valuation, just find good partners that you can work with for the long run. Mm. So do you have any advice for the
1: founders like who is going through this like kind of tough times, right? Like how, how do you kind of get through these uh, tough times?
0: Yeah, there, there's the just kind of, you know, visceral, like you need to uh, manage your burn, uh, if you're burning money. Uh, if you're not burning money, congratulations, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you are now in a place where you can kind of chart your own uh, path for the future. Uh, so, so that, like take care of your house, reduce your spend, figure out every which way you can do that. Um, then you say, what is the true value creation lever for my company? is it that you are really strong in building one particular type of technology and that's how you stand out versus the competition if so then that's where you're going to be investing right so when you think about your resource allocation you want to cut as much of the fat out there right cut as much of that extra stuff that you don't actually need to spend on today you need to live for the near term now because you don't know when you're going to be able to access new capital and so you need to focus on on those elements and that for some companies is tech for some companies They may have beautiful product market fit, right? And for those companies, maybe it's more sales and marketing, right? Maybe it's more of like, hey, while the competition is, you know, flailing and they're trying to figure out their life, let's increase our sales and marketing and go head to head because we know that we already have the best technology, right? Or whatever product or service. So I think it, it, you know, every founder needs to make that analysis, but take care of your house, you know, decrease the expenses you don't need, and then focus on your strength where you really can add value to your particular market. Cool. Well, thanks.
1: Thanks for the advice. Um, now, do, like, what's your kind of investment horizon, right? And mm-hmm. also, like earlier, we talked about uh, diversity and also sustainability of the business. You know, how does those kind of goals, right? Uh, does that kind of contradict with the investment uh, timeline and horizon, or like, uh, does it not contradict? And how can you have the best of both worlds?
0: That that is a a, a very astute question because I actually think a lot of investors do not consider all those elements of investment horizon. Uh, When you go up market and you're doing more private equity deals, your standard financial model is a five-year financial model. That is your standard hold period. Uh, In venture, you understand that five years may probably be a little on the lower end. So you need to be thinking about a seven to nine-year horizon. Uh, A lot of VCs end up embedding into their agreements with their investors, referred to as a limited partnership agreement, their LPA. They end up embedding automatic extensions of of their fund. What does that mean is that they are basically foreshadowing to their investors hey i may need more time than 10 years <laughs> so i want to automatically extend my fund uh, and so um, that's how uh, vcs uh, think about investment horizon in my view so this is now me as an investor i want to think about any company i invest in i need to be thinking that this is a good company for the long run yes i may get lucky that in the next two years the company shoots up and grows really really fast and that would be phenomenal right? You always love those exits. In fact, I just had one of those recently. Um, but that, that doesn't always work, right? That one company that I just, that I just mentioned that, that we just um, exited our stake in, um, I, I, I could have held on to it because I, I still believe that that company had a lot of legs, had a lot of running room. Uh, we just were fortunate, you know, one thing leads to another and and we got a good uh, uh, follow on investor in that case. But every company that I invest in, I want to I, I want to invest in them because I could hold on to this for 10, 15, 20 years. And so for me, sustainability is important. I don't want to invest in companies that are quick flips, right? A lot of people talk about real estate, you <laughs> can flip it, buy it, flip it. Uh, I don't think as companies as flips I think as companies as partnerships with the team that is actually running them and I want to be able to hold on to it for the long run knowing as an investor that there probably will be an exit along the way and my investors are going to want their money back at some point and that's just natural that's what happens but I tell all my investors that you're going to let me manage your money because I'm going to make good prudent investment decisions on your behalf. And so if you want your money back, then we'll talk about that and we'll try to get you your money back. But otherwise, I want to be able to continually beat the market on a consistent basis and let, you know, one of the the beauties of investing compounding, right? I want compounding returns uh, to benefit you and you shouldn't want your money back. You should want me to continue managing your money for the long run. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I like sustainable business too. I guess that's why we're good friends. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you
0: talk about quick quick
1: f- uh, flips and uh that that just like spurred me a uh, kind of random question. We can cut this out if you want sure, later. Sure. <laughs> Go for it. Here, <laughs> hit, hit, hit me. <laughs> hit me <laughs> what do you think of the cryptocurrency in the web 3 market like
0: <laughs> <laughs> do you have any opinions on that <laughs> um it was uh i think mid-december mm. uh i was at a, at a holiday party and i was talking to a buddy of mine who was a strong believer in solana and it was down like 90 <laughs> plus percent and i was like well if you're such a strong believer this is the moment look it's down ninety something percent go all in right and uh-huh. and i i i say that as a sort of micro anecdote to if you really believe in something you can see if you can see something that you believe everyone is missing out on then believe in yourself if that's really who you are then don't go against what you believe in right and what's happening right now which is not just crypto i'll go back to crypto and and you know blockchain and metaverse and other things that sort of have hit this sort of you know popularity and and nfts um and some of it may may be around for the long run but it definitely hit this fervor, right? In November, 2021, that was the peak. And I tell any investor in any of these, what others may consider fads, right? Or again, the fervor of the imagination of people like this is going to continue going up and I'm not missing out. The best investors in the world are investing less right now than they were investing in November, 2021. Why? To me, it doesn't make sense. If you really believe in something, then right now you should be investing even more. Than when you were in 2021, in November 2021, because in November 2021, the prices were like three, four, five times, in some cases, 10 times as what they are today. So anyway, that's my like takeaway for anyone that really believes in what, you know, whether it's crypto or NFTs. If you believe in it, believe in it. Have I invested in any of it? I have not. Um, I have invested in one company, company called TRM Labs, and specifically because it was taking care of essentially security, AML, right, compliance needs for financial institutions. So in my view, Hey, there may be something to it. And I was seeing institutions of well repute doing this right. Banks or whatnot. I said, Hey, if there's a company that's actually going to help the banks do it the right way, that is a winner in my, in my opinion, right? This may only end up being 0.1% of the global market and that's okay. Everyone thinks it might be much higher. Everyone, you know, Shamath Paliapathia said, put 1% of your net worth into this, right? Um, But it may be 0.1%, right? And even if it's 0.1%, a company that's going to help with the security cyber compliance of the biggest financial institutions, that to me could be a winner. So that's a way for me to play this fervor, but in a more responsible risk mitigated way, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Uh, So, you know, you have to be a student of the game. I I try not to poo-poo every idea out there, even if I'm not investing in it. I think as an investor, you need to understand trends. You need to understand how human beings think, right? When you saw the Wall Street bets craze, and you saw AMC go up, and you saw these crazy companies that were bankrupt, uh still people bidding on them and buying them you can't just dismiss it you need to understand why is that happening what is driving people right and if you do that then you look at everything not in a dismissive way but you look at it with a different lens and you're like let me appreciate it let me understand it doesn't mean i need to invest in it but i need to understand how that could impact something else that i'm working on Mm -hmm. and so that's that's the 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 at least what i think is a more level-headed way to look at all the space
1: yeah i i think blockchain is not going to save the world or it can be a peninsula for everything. But that said, for public key infrastructures or security, especially in the audit side of things, I, I think it can definitely play a role, actually. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And I, th- I think the internet is still alive. <laughs> I think the you know cloud ecosystems are still used, needed, right? Even a lot of these blockchain companies still reliant on the, you know, now what's referred to as the legacy, you know, cloud infrastructure company. So I think there's still a lot of stuff that as an investor... I could still deploy capitals, capital capital in, in a more uh, responsible way and still have good returns into something that's being useful, uh, where I don't need to be so speculative into something um, because just because everyone else is doing it.
1: So yeah, I, I think you have a quite interesting journey, as I said in the beginning. I think you you start, you know, in the Central LA, right, and then the Stanford, pre, uh, premier institution. And then the finance, Goldman Sachs, and then startups and running for the mayor of LA and then now doing investing and things like that. Uh, actually, I forgot to mention, <laughs> actually volunteer for the army <laughs> and all that stuff. So like through this uh, interesting journey, like what are the three top lessons like uh, you've learned and also that you can share for those uh, who want to go, uh, who, who wants to go into your career at one yeah. day? Yeah. You know?
0: uh well um if you can do all my careers that's phenomenal um uh, i would say um don't follow the herd right so that's one uh you know there's other sort of adages out there like you know you get into the rat race right like you're, you're you're like looking to your left and your right and you're seeing what are your friends doing how fast are they getting whatever next job promotion right or pay or salary don't follow the herd um play your own game right so 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 don't follow the herd i like to also say create your own playing field so in my case uh, i'll just give you one little anecdote of how i did that to color it is that i was class of 2005 from stanford but i took a year and a half off of Stanford while in undergrad. What did I do? Travel the world, did more internships, got more work experience. And my view was that if I would have just entered the rat race and, and, and looked to my left and right, all my classmates were graduating in the spring of 2005. And I, if I allowed myself, I would have felt, Oh my God, I'm behind. Oh my God. You know, she's already working at Goldman Sachs at that point, right? Full time. And I'm not. I still have to take two more semesters or two more quarters of classes. And so if you just kind of strip yourself of that and and think like folks, when they get older, they start actually thinking more like that because it's if you're 35 versus 39, less of a difference versus if you're 22 yeah. and 23. And, and so um don't follow the herd, create your own playing field. The other thing is related to this, it's a marathon, it is a long road. So don't be in a rush. Do what's right for you and take your time. If you need to take your time, take your time. Um, I know, uh, you know I'm, I'm going to share something you shared with me in the past in that you, you had to learn English you know, as a second language here in the, in the States. Um, and, and early on, it wasn't easy. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I, I was born here, but my mom only spoke Spanish. And so English was a second language for me as well. Right. And to this day, I sometimes don't pronounce things perfectly. Uh, I, I remember, uh, uh, when I was going to college, I never thought I had an accent and someone reminded me I was 18 years old and they're like, you have an accent. I was like, an accent from where? <laughs> like <laughs> I'm from LA. I was born and raised here in the States. Uh, and you realize that, um, to others, you may be different. And, and, and so, um, Um, for me, you know, I also went to a, uh, high school that, um, was not well regarded from a test course perspective, or, you know, when you look at the rankings, in fact, we were one of like 10 high schools, Wilson high school that, you know, the state had to intervene, uh, and, and, you know, change (laughs) leadership. Yeah. It was not, not a good situation. And I love my high school. I had a great experience still to this day. I love my high school, but I knew when I was studying you know, in, in Stanford and my friend told me that her high school was more challenging and harder than Stanford, I was like, what? How does that work? <laughs> like, <laughs> This is 10 times harder than my high school. And so you start realizing that maybe if you're trying to compete at the highest level, at the most elite level, right? If I'm trying to reach Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, be the best at Silicon Valley, there are a bunch of people that are way better prepared than I am. And so for me, I was like, why am I gonna hit my head against the wall and try to compete someone with someone that had like a 10 year head start on me, right? And I see it now in my kids and I know I'm I'm jumping around a little bit here on advice but it's all related to like, it's a marathon, take your time. My kids now, my seven year old, my five year old, they have piano lessons, right? They're doing (laughs) jujitsu, they're playing soccer, they're learning Mandarin, like (laughs) they're gonna have a leg up, right? And I know that when I got to Stanford, I was competing against those types of kids. Right. And I knew I was at a disadvantage, whether you like it or not, even though I had all the confidence in the world, like I was an athlete, like I was like, I'm smart. I know how to do this. And 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 it just hit you in the face right after the first quarter when your grades aren't straight A's anymore. Um, So all that to say is that I took a step back and I said, if it takes me a while, it's okay. I'm going to get there because I do have confidence in myself. And I'm going to get there. And it's, it might take me, I'm now, you know, 40 years old. I still haven't built, you know, my, I don't have a fund yet. I haven't raised a multi hundred million dollar fund, but I've done a lot of deals and I have the confidence to get there. And it just took me a while, right? Those hundred firms that I was reaching out to venture capital, private equity firms. And they all said, no, I was already in my early thirties. And I was like, I'll take a job as an associate where my peers are 24 years old, even though I was, you know, eight, nine years later, uh, because to me, I was like, I'm creating my own playing field, and for me, it's a marathon, and I'm going to get there eventually. And the last thing I would say is that no one is going to believe more in you than you are. Believe in yourself. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be the best at everything, but believe in yourself. Trust yourself. And I'll leave you with some of the advice I tell my founders that I invest in, right? Or uh, you know, the company I'm, I'm working at um, day to day, uh, Phoenix. Um, and I say to to those founders, I say trust yourself, believe in yourself. I know there's a lot of people that advice, that give you advice out there. There's a lot of books you could read that tell you what to do with your companies, but ultimately it's your company. You're the one that's making a decision. If you trust yourself, believe in yourself, then, you know, the only person you could do is blame yourself and not blame other people. And there's something serene, something beautiful about that, where you have the power to make that decision and no one else is going to give it to you you need to take it yourself and make those decisions. So, you know, it's, uh, don't get into the rat race, right? Create your own playing field. Remember it's a marathon, right? It's going to be a long road. Take your time. You'll eventually get there and believe in yourself because you're the best person to know what you can actually do and what you want to do, uh, with your life.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Emmanuel, for sharing this (laughs) wisdom. I, you know, I, I, I always believe that you're going to win because uh, you never give up and you have such a passion and uh, optimism for life. I just uh, have deep, deep respect for that. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Well, we're on the long road and we're in it together. <laughs> so let's let's keep it going.
1: <laughs> but thanks for dropping by uh, today. And uh like if for those like, who want to reach you, like what's the best way to reach you, Emmanuel?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, we talked about Captable Coalition. Um, uh, uh, just reach out on the website and Captable Coalition. Uh, join the coalition. Um, I'm also very active on LinkedIn. I, I am still a social butterfly on the social sphere. Uh, so, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, connect with me. Uh, just look me up, Emmanuel Plaites. And and uh I usually am, am fairly responsive, especially if you um say that you listen to me here on the Tank Talks uh <laughs> podcast. Uh I will I promise I will respond. Uh but I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Thank you. Thank you, Emmanuel.